welcome to this month's episode of the Divine Comedians podcast. I'm your host, Paula Wiseman, and today I am lucky enough to be chatting with comedian, writer and actor Steve First. So, hey, Steve, nice to be chatting with you today. You too, Paula. Thank you very much for asking me. I, uh, I, I have to say you've kind of humbled me with the people that you've already had on. So uh, I'm a very illustrious company. No, as I said, I've been a, been a fan for a long, long time. And we're friends on Facebook as well, which is, you know, Indeed. which is always good. So most people probably know you for your wonderful Lenny Beige and many, many other characters that you've played over the years, including some in Little Britain with Matt yeah. Lucas and David Williams. So to start off, you, you wouldn't know it to hear you speak, but you were, you were born in Belfast. Were you there for a very long? I was born in Belfast, I know. Well, I have to say the accent was lost because I was when we left so I think I can't imagine anyone holds on to that I mean I know people you know that have lived in the same place for 30 years and don't have the accent so um, well my mum was from Dublin and my dad was the conductor of the first conductor in fact of the uh, Ulster Symphony Orchestra oh wow and then when the troubles flared up it was decided that uh, that it was probably uh, safer if we uh, we went elsewhere there was a couple of kind of weird things that had happened and I think it just, and also from my dad's career, he just felt being in uh, London or being in England was mm. going to be better for his career at that point. So, but he always, he came back to Ireland later on in his life, and he loved the Irish. I mean, loved them. Yeah, I think it was uh, they'd lived with it for a, a couple of years, so yeah. it being increasingly difficult. And uh, so, yeah, it's weird. I've never really felt. I've, I've been back to to Ireland a lot. I've never gone back. To, to uh, Belfast, it's very peculiar, and I this year I I narrowly missed out on a series for uh, BBC for BBC Kids, and it would have meant being in Belfast for about three months. So I was that was that was my main disappointment about not getting it. So I thought actually I love spend some time there. Yeah, I uh, still time, Steve, still time. Um, always. So um, so how did your break into comedy happen? Was it something that you'd always wanted to do, or did you kind of fall into it accidentally? Well, I had harboured a... Uh, I liked music as a kid. My, me and my parents were musicians, and, and I was in that sort of world. I was learning instruments, but comedy was always, for me, my obsession, and it was certainly not, you know, uh, not unlike a lot of people. It was Python and not the Nine O'Clock News, mm. and then um, my best mate had a... And he's still my best mate. In fact, we've most of the stuff that we've done over the years, what I've done over the years, has involved Mike, and uh, we were at college together, at school together, and... He had a video recorder when my family didn't. So the few things which were taped were just poured over yeah. every morning before we went to school. You know, faulty towers, the occasional bit of Python, because, of course, you couldn't get it really at that point in the in the 80s. But the comic strip particularly then became an obsession of mine and those brilliant early comic strip films on, when Channel 4 started in yes. 1983 or 82. And, of course, we were of a, a certain generation where, when it was on, all you talked about in the playground was the young ones or that one or that programme, and everyone had seen it. Mm. And if you missed it, then maybe someone had taped it. But it was like having... And also comedy albums. I had, a, you know, all the Python albums. So yeah. It was replaying, replaying and replaying and pouring over sleeve notes and books as well and... So it was very much, I knew I wanted to go into that area, yeah. but I was quite shy. I didn't have the confidence or the break, really, until I was in my sixth form. And I, uh, again, it's, it, you know, it's a well-trodden 
story, uh, we need, it was a teacher that kind of recognised a few of us and went, you should have a release for the, the rubbish you're talking and for the, <laughs> the, the disruption you're causing. And why not do a review? Why not kind of funnel it all yeah. into an outlet? And that was the review. That was the first proper taste of doing comedy on stage. And then we formed a little sketch group. And I sort of, so, and then, you know, went to college and started doing it more regularly. But it was still, I did, I still didn't know what I wanted to do. Mm. And I was a much better performer than I was writer. I still consider myself a better performer than I am writer. It's a different discipline. But I didn't get a big break as such. I sort of fell into it because I just loved the world of comedy. And uh, I started doing uh, stand-up after college and uh, promoting stand-up and, and running a... I started off, founded Britain's first comedy magazine called The Heckler, and uh, that got me in that world, I suppose, which was a very small world, but, you know, I was promoting comedy at a, at a venue in North London, and then I thought, I'm not happy doing stand-up, and that's when sort of Lenny Beige was born. We were doing nightclubs, and uh, we, uh, through a friend, we had a venue, and we thought, we need a host to this night, and Lenny was born. So that's really the, the the very loose version of my journey into it. Yeah, I mean, Lenny's got a very, very distinctive look, hasn't he? And his moves and stuff. So was it all yes. just, was it kind of like, I don't know, where did you even get Lenny's look? Or was it, is it all just really exaggerated? Well, it is exaggerated, and it's, you know, you've got to, we, me, again, me and my best friend Mike, we knew the kind of club we wanted to run. We were running a board games nightclub at that point, which was quite successful in terms of... It made no money, but it was successful in terms of... We got a lot of press about it. We were on the news, we were on this programme, and on that, being interviewed and doing little franchise things and taking it on the road to university. And basically, we were dressing up in velvet jackets and bow ties <laughs> and playing easy listening music, which was starting to come you know, to have big revival. And so we knew that world very well. And it yeah. was the world that our parents' generation loved those sort of clubs where you'd walk in and there'd be a little band playing and a host. And, and so when the opportunity came to do a Friday night in a friend's bar, it was like, okay, let's invent a character. And uh, I'd started to, you know, because I was listening to these people, like Anthony Newley, who I'd become obsessed with. He was an all-round entertainer that was from the east end of London, so it had a Jewish provenance like I have. It had, he had a bit of um, Frankie Vaughan, was another person we grew up with, who had a famous high leg kick. Yeah. He was called Mr. Moonlight. And, of course, our generation didn't really know him. So, it, you know, and, and weirdly, I could do this very high kick. So all of these things started to fall into place in my head. And then over the course of doing it for a few months, the makeup becomes exaggerated and I want big eyebrows and I want, you know, a lot of jewellery and I want... It, he thinks he's more successful than he is and uh, he becomes a bit of a monster. So all of these things that you keep adding layer after layer after layer and within a year you're like, there we go, there's the monster. He didn't come out fully formed. Like any child, he has to... Uh, they have to kind of grow and find their feet a little bit um, and then they then they take over you. It's a sketch. You know, when you watch painters, they don't tend to slap it all on the, the canvas immediately. Yeah. The, you know, there is the, the outline and the little thumbnail sketches. And also I'd seen, I'd started to see people. So when we first started doing Lenny, we had a little corporate booking at the Cafe Royal on Regent Street. And um, we finished early. It was an early thing. And the guy 
on the door. I said, you know, Anthony Newman's playing in the green room upstairs. Do you want to pop pop your head in? He's got no, he's literally, there's only a handful of people in. And we're like, what? So he said, yeah, pop, pop your head in, it's fine. You know, just, just just started. So there must have been 50 people in this venue and it was just magic. And I went, that's Lenny, that's Lenny. That The, the way he behaves on stage, yeah. his love of it. And so, you know, you see people or you see films and you add another little accent or phrase or this or that and uh, and then before you, it's a hybrid that's the word hybrid <laughs> um yeah so i mean i think we've spoken about it before but i've got this vivid memory of seeing you in the queen's hall in edinburgh with the divine comedy yeah. doing national express many moons Indeed. ago that was an evening well, and a half neil, yes well neil was very because he was a very good friend then and he uh he phoned up and he just went oh, i just i don't want to sing that song anymore um, and he goes, I know you're in Edinburgh. Um, would you come and sing? And I was like, yeah, yeah. I saw a video of it. I've still got a video of it that someone has filmed from the side of the stage. And it's it's a great memory because Edinburgh was really uh, important to the birth of Lenny. The Edinburgh been a good few years at the festival that were just magical. And obviously, the you know, Neil was absolutely at the, at the top of his game at then. It was a really happy moment on stage. And, um, yeah, very fond memory of that night. Yeah, no, I just remember this this suit appearing on stage, and you're like, oh my goodness, what, what's going on? And there were a lot of very disappointed people, Paula, when he didn't sing it. You're like, no. oh, who's this? Who's this for? <laughs> um, and then, uh, you know, I, I like to think I won a few, I, I won a few people around, but yeah, big boots to fill, but Lenny can fill them. Yeah, I was in the front row that evening, and it was just such a. It, it added, oh. you know, it really added to the uh, to the atmosphere. I think so. I think you know. I think that's that. You know, it creates a different energy on stage, and that's and there's no bad thing in that. Well, um, yeah, I was kind of thinking maybe that your connection with Neil would be through like Robbie Williams, because I know you did some uh, stuff with Guy. You know what? Yeah, it was with Guy. It was because uh, Guy Chambers was again the journey of Lenny was pretty rapid at one stage mm. um from about 96 uh 94 he'd be kind of we first did it and then 96 we were looking for a backing band and a friend of mine said have you met this there's a very michael guy chambers who's he's a great songwriter he's an amazing player but he's just not working and so guy and i met loved each other he absolutely got it and uh, he put together a little band uh, which basically became Robbie's band and you know he got that gig about six months into playing with me mm. and so then Robbie would come down and sing as well and sort of Let Me Entertain You was written as a, a an homage to the club and to Lenny and that whole thing of that kind of showbiz you know and it yeah. was it kind of was performed there for the first time and so there was a real kind of sense of excitement and Neil was part of it because Guy had worked with Neil although it didn't quite there were little bits that were happening in him and, and Robbie but um, we became close and um, so there was a our then wives were and our, our firstborn were born within a month of each other and they're still really good mates now yeah because I know, I know Robbie toured and had Neil as a, as a support sort of just around that time that's right I, yes of course he did that's right I mean I loved you know I remember being out on various evenings with I'm actually going to Ireland to see them all. Yeah, seeing uh, Neil support them. Um, and, you know, although at that point, you know, I think Robbie's rise had become stratospheric. I mean, genuinely stratospheric. But very hard for yeah. someone, you know, you know, we know and love what Neil does. And it's a very, it's often the way when 
the main act wants that person. Now, I want them as my support. I love them. But, of course, you're, you've got a teenage audience. It's <laughs> um, And, uh, yeah, it's a tough crowd to play to at the best of times. Yeah. No, we went We went to, obviously, you know, support Neil seeing Robbie. And it was quite funny because we queued, got to the front for Neil. And then Neil did his set and went off. And we just kind of walked away from the front barrier. And everyone's looking at us going, like, what are you doing? <laughs> Robbie Williams is coming yeah, exactly. out. Don't, I don't really care. I'm going to, I've come to see Neil and that's it. That's it. <laughs> that's you. <laughs> um, so you worked back in the day. So you worked with Chris Evans in the early yeah. 90s. What was that like? That was kind yeah. of him just kind of starting to become big. That was big. his first TV job. Mm. That was his first time. He was a BBC GLR presenter, mm. you know, the local BBC station. I was just out of college, and to be honest, the only proper job I've had in terms of it lasted a year and a half. But it was <laughs> as a researcher and production secretary for a new TV company, which was going to be the rival to MTV. Yeah. It was going to be BSB's music channel called uh, The Power Station. And it was owned by Palace Pictures, who made lots of very cool films at the time. And it was very rock and roll. And it was basically a load of children being left in charge of a TV station. It was very anarchic. And Suggs was a presenter, and Boy George was a presenter. Wow. And Joe Wiley was a researcher. And a guy called Andy Bird, who went on to be the worldwide head of Disney, was... Uh, I mean, it's, the people that went through those doors yeah or the, the core workforce was incredible and one of the people was chris Evans, and i have to say it was a very difficult working relationship for everybody with chris and you know he's written about this a lot mm. and, you know i've seen him many times since and he's always been delightful but it was hard and he had a an arrogance that was partly justified because he was incredibly gifted and he knew what he wanted to do and if you didn't work at his rate and and the kind of work that he did, then he would vent his frustrations. And uh, and I know he behaved that way for many years. And, you know, but he got what he wanted. And, you know, you could see why he was doing it. It was like, it's a different sort of brain. And it just didn't suit the way I worked. Mm. And um, But it made for a very interesting year and a half. And I did learn a lot being in that place. And, you know, I'm still friends with, with a good few people from there. So, you know, very important beginnings. Yeah, he's always come across as very driven, hasn't he? He kind of, he acts very sort of laid back. But you kind of, you get the vibe that well, he's... Well, I genuinely think, and it's not a thing, it's really not a term I, I dole out very often, but I genuinely think he, he's a genius. I think he yeah. has, he's, he's like Danny Baker. Mm. He, so I remember Danny, when I was growing up, seeing him on the six o'clock show or whatever, and I remember, you know, thinking, turns to the dozen and he's funny and he's quick. And then... But he'd been in the wilderness for a few years. Yeah. And it was Chris who brought him in to be his holiday replacement on our channel. And I remember thinking, okay. And just and then when he did those weeks, it was unbelievable. He wouldn't wear an earpiece, just say, how long is this link? 20 seconds, bang, for the second. It was like this very, you know, these people are very, they're like born with this innate ability. Mm. They're like TV animals. And... Um, it's extraordinary to watch, and I think Chris was, was very much like that. And Danny was his mentor, and uh, Danny went on to write for him for years. And they're still best mates now. And I think you know, it was quite a difficult, but a privilege to watch that sort of. Uh, <laughs> let me tell you, I, I've worked with Suggs over the years. <laughs> he ain't a natural TV animal. Um, neither was Boy George. So um, yeah, it was it, as hard as it was. It was great. 
That's the thing, I suppose with Suggs, do you know what I mean? He's a musician, he's a singer at the end of the, you know, and that's kind of what he does. Yeah, and chaotic even at that, at best, <laughs> yes. you know, which is, as we know, is his charm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he's, uh, bless his heart, he's, you know, Suggs has never been one you go to to be, right, you know, here's someone really absolutely on the ball. He's got a chaotic charm <laughs> that, that everyone loves him. And I did that show Night Fever yeah. on Channel 5 when it started. And Suggs was presenter, and I was doing the letters on it and singing songs, and joyously chaotic. But people <laughs> loved him. He's just got that, you know, that kind of almost like a folk hero. Mm. Yeah, a bit of North London charm, I like to yeah, call it. Yeah, but it's just, but, but also that North London charm that I think everyone, that, that people from Fife would love and people from Exeter would love. And I think. Mm. That, Yes, I think London is, oh, yeah, he's one of our own, especially me. I grew up, you know, I used to hang, you know, Camden Market was my playground when I was a kid. Yeah, yeah. So it was very much, they were local heroes. So, yeah, uh, it's, uh, oh, I love them, love them. Yeah. So after your kind of, your start work, working with Chris Evans, you moved into doing stand-up in, like, 92. Um, what do yeah. you what do you remember of your first proper stand-up gig? Was was it scary? I remember, well, I remember reasonably clearly, and, uh, yes, yeah, scary, and, because I ran this comedy magazine, I sort of, I was in that world yeah. of that alternative circuit and writing about it. And, and I've told her this and she she can't remember, but Joe Brand, I wrote a review about Joe Brand. and was a, not scathing, but I was a bit sniffy about, well, I've kind of heard these gags before and I'm still, you know, I've been doing the same gag now for 25 years as Lenny, so I'm a fine one to talk. Yeah. <laughs> she, I was like, you know, she's so much better than this and I wish I could. Anyway, she rang up and she was a bit, pissed off and I mortified and she said you know the thing is about you know I know you're you know I know you want to perform you should just do it rather than talk about it and talk about it and slag other people off do it oh, God. so I felt a little push that yes okay I'm going to do it and one of the people who was selling our magazine who was a great champion was a guy called Peter Harris who ran Screaming Blue Murder Clubs in in uh, South West London which were really it was like you run three of them I think so they were very successful. Uh, I mean, you know, there were rooms above pubs, but they always mm. did very well. And he discovered Eddie Izzard and Dominic, various other people. And he was Eddie's manager at that time. And um, he said, I need, you've always got, you know, you'll always have an open spot at my club. And uh, and I went down and, of course, just absolutely <laughs> bricking it. But, and the girl behind the bar that night was a girl called Dawn Sedgwick, who went on to work for Pete and then left Pete and then became Simon Pegg's agent. She's still Simon's agent. Oh, wow. So she's got, you know, a very, very bespoke boutique little management company um, with a few handful of acts that are, you know, phenomenally successful. So Pete had an incredible eye for attract and also attracted people that were were all really good. I mean, mm. And in their own field, whether it was behind the bar or, or on stage or, you know, and he was an amazing champion and actually did an awful lot of, of good for me and other comics. In fact, he produced our show, the the, the, the now unmentionable Gary Cutter story in Edinburgh, and then we did the West End in '94. And um, Pete lost a lot of money on it, um, and it, you know it, it kind of had to be the, the, a show about a sort of failure that um, failed in itself. It was uh, a very again a quite an interesting year. But um, I will always thank Pete for giving me the stage. Yeah, I've spoken about it with other guests before, about Edinburgh, the Edinburgh Festival itself. And it kind of, I don't know, it means different things to different people, obviously. And 
I don't know, how, what are your memories of uh, performing in Edinburgh at the festival? Well, I went up, first time I went up was with the magazine. Mm. So that would have been 1991. And I was so excited about going up because obviously we're writing about Edinburgh in the year re- leading up to it and the yeah. year before. And uh, we hadn't, you know, we didn't know where to stay. But the age, I think we had no money, nowhere to stay. Um, and it was uh, Jupiter's said, um, well, we've got a kind of a spare room. Come and stay. We he was doing a, a show called The Live Ethics Show. It was him, I think Sean Locke, I think Lorraine Bowen, somebody, anyway. And we arrived and Phil went, right, that's it. And it was a cupboard. It, I mean, it was actually a cupboard and there were two of us. And we managed me and my best mate Mike to sleep we, the first night we could do a top to tail <laughs> curled round like two cats and it was gloriously uncomfortable and then the next morning I woke up and I had chicken pox fully blown Ooh. chicken pox so I I had to leave I mean I just it was it was awful and I, I I didn't have enough money for the train and I had to go back on the coach and just this just feeling terrible but feeling worse because I knew that I was missing out on this bit of magic. And I was only there, I remember the first place I had a drink at the Pleasance Courtyard where, you know, we were told you could get the Pleasance. And so we went up, I think it was in either the next year or the year after, probably the year after, 93. And that was the first time that we did the Gary Glitter story up there and um, had a huge success. And we followed John Cooper Clark. We were in a venue called The Music Box, which was, a joy to watch him every every yeah. day at the end of his set, and then Corky and the Juice Pigs, who won the Perrier Award that year, followed us. So it was, again, there was just an amazing little magic about this venue, and it wasn't one of the main comedy venues. So that was the first proper Edinburgh proper, and we, we were living above the fishmongers, which was <laughs> delightful. Uh, and then a the year after that was um, the first Lenny excursion which wasn't so successful but that's the thing you can always go up with a not so successful show and just you know and no money really but also you know i hate that that, oh it will better in my day but you didn't have to you really you weren't going to be losing any money you yourself weren't losing anything we had a promoter they were taking the pun and so you know i'm signing on about the first few years that i went and queuing up at the grass market with half the other bloody comedy circuit. So it felt you were you were able to survive. It wasn't so expensive. You were, yourself weren't taking the risk. It had a different feeling. It wasn't as business-like. It was getting that way with the Avalons and the Off the Curve. Mm. It was getting a bit... They were just beginning to kind of really nail what it was, the, the, the sort of slight comedy mafia feel. But we were always with people that were much more maverick and a bit on the fringes mm. and I, I, that, that you know i love malcolm hardy I, oh my God, yeah. that, I love the chaos of that and arthur's um walks around edinburgh and the, you know those mad mad nights of being in the penny black all night and just you know till nine in the morning because it was the only 24-hour pub in edinburgh and, i mean you know they, they, different, different times different times but yeah. i'm aware that people have their best edinburgh's now and good luck to them um i've never been back to do it Fifteen years, and we almost did this year. We were gonna. I was in a production of Twelve Angry Men, and which was huge in two thousand and three or something. And we were gonna go back and do it again. And I think we, we still want to do it. Um, as sort of the same cast, um, but I love it. it. It will always be very special. 
this show is not bad, I think. But because I don't really do stand-up anymore, I, I, and I don't really do comedy festivals. Yeah. But what I do really fills me rejoice to see you know, how bright festivals come on and how less comedy festivals yeah. come on. Uh, you know, it's great that other towns can have their own taste of uh, of the festival, but there there is nothing in the world like it. And you know, and I think it's the cross pollinization of theatre and the weird and. and and you know, free fringe has been really important to it as well in keeping the the weird alive. Because I'm all for the strange and the peripheral <laughs> nonsense. I don't like it to all be middle of the road. There's another uh, mate of mine, Bob, and he he had the the Bob's Blunder bus, and you know he had a you know converted a bus to do just weird shit on it. And I think it's really important that the Mavericks can find a, a voice still. In a, in a world where it's so much about sponsorship and about um, paying up front for a venue. I think when you lose that sense of anything can happen, we could see anything. When that goes, it dies. The spirit dies. So, and listen, you can have the, you can have the bigger shows in the bigger venues and paying, you know, £25 to see someone who's on telly a lot because yeah. you know what to expect. But you need to, it needs to be... Uh, married with yeah, the weird and the wonderful. You know, it, it's a brilliant madhouse and a, a great breeding ground for other things as well. And you get that cross-pollinization that you don't get when you're just doing the circuit in the same way. Because you're all going out together, you're all kind of drinking together, you're all carousing together, and I think that, that creates its own magic as well. Yeah, I suppose it's having that experience as well and also about making connections. You know, you're obviously going to make connections yeah. when you're there. And it was so important, you know. It's like, shit, who's in tonight? Oh, my God, they're in. ITV are in. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, you get them in. They couldn't give a <laughs> big what you're doing. Or half of them are asleep because they've seen eight shows in that day. And then they've come to your sweat box at 11 o'clock at night. They yeah. can't keep their eyes open. So, okay, all part of it. All part of the lottery. So, and again, I've seen seen some of the greatest shows I've ever seen up there. I mean, the first League of Gentlemen show, and oh, yeah. um, you know, just things that you're like, shit, this is just this is rewritten the rule book. And I'm not sure, you know. And you've seen them on their first outing, and you know, and you remember it. You know, it's like, and I made some of my best friends up there. I made some, you know, some great memories. So, yeah, very special. Yeah. So um, let's talk a little bit about some of the TV work you've done. Seriously, your CV is is crazy. Doc Martin, you've been in Holby a couple of times. Toast of London, yeah, Cardinal yeah. Burns. Absolutely love those yeah. guys. Uh, and you also, obviously, yeah, as right. I said earlier, you worked with Matt and David on Little Britain. So how did you get involved with them initially? Well, they when I started doing stand-up, we were part of a, a weird club night that... I was thinking about him, actually, because he moved up to him. He's Joe Caulfield's husband, this this very fine stand-up Joe. Mm. And, in fact, they met at this club, uh, which was he called the Hampstead Clinic, (laughs) and it was uh, in the the White Horse, which is no longer the White Horse, but it's down in South Hampstead, or Hampstead Green, as it's called. And we used to regularly do shows there. And myself, Paul Putner, we all know. Yes. And then Max came to work with us and we were like he was 17 or 18 he was working in the Chelsea shop after he just left school haberdashers and he was doing Chumley Bernard Chumley yeah and we were like oh my god this talent of this 17 year old shy bloke with alopecia yeah and we were like he's unbelievable 
And so that's how that that started. And then I remember, so my, I had a glam rock band. So this is what led on to the Gary Vett show. I was obsessive about, about glam rock. And we did a New Year's Eve show in about 1991 at the Notre Dame Hall, which is now Leicester Square Theatre, which was then a, like a dance hall in Leicester Square. And we thought, we were, <laughs> oh my God, I can't believe I hate to say this, but we need someone to introduce it. So Matt could do, Matt did a really, really good Jimmy Savile impression. <laughs> so basically, you had Savile introducing glitter. There's a double bill for you now, kids. Um, and it was, yeah, and he was like, oh, they hate it, they hated it, they hated it. I'm like, talking about it. I loved it. But it was like, you know, that, yeah, so our relationship was, you know, went way, 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 way back. And then he went off to Bristol, met Dave, and at that point, Bob Mortimer came down to the club uh, in Hampstead. Yeah. And they, they were doing Big Night Out. Or they were just, yeah, no, they were doing Big Night Out. And uh, Bob was always great at, sort of discovering new mm. people. I wasn't doing any kind of anything weird. I was just, just sort of doing sketches and bits of bobs um, as with partner. But Matt was fully formed as Chumley. And Bob went, well, he's just bloody unbelievable. And he just went, um, we're doing a new show. Or we're putting the idea together for a new show called Shooting Stars. And he went off to Bristol, did a year, started doing Shooting Stars and went, well, that's it. I don't need to do it. So, <laughs> and I think that was about 93, 94. And, yeah, and then that's how they became mates. And then we all became mates. You know, we all hung out quite a lot at that time. And then when I started doing Lenny, him and Matt and Dave used to do the club regularly, often separately as well, interestingly enough. I, I did a TV series in 99, 2000 at the club, and uh, Matt was my script editor. Dave was doing all sorts of bits and bobs. Um, so yeah, so it was really, it, it was funny. To, you know, we were we were certainly friendlier with Matt. Although I was I was quite close to Dave. But so when they started doing their own stuff on the radio, they asked partner and me to to, to do bits, and uh, and that obviously led to the, the telly thing. But of course, that was later mm. when we when that all happened. So but we'd all been working together, and I, I did a series. I did a little series of interstitials that were called the Paramount comedy channel which mm. is an amazing thing in the about 97 and we did a thing called many days investigation and i don't have them i don't have that i've got one i think i've got one it was my first little taste of doing telly and um uh dave was in one of those and um that was almost the first thing he had so you know it was though you don't forget those early beginnings, yeah really. again it's about connections yeah. isn't it making these connections meeting yeah. one person yeah, yeah. and then meeting another person through them of course and, you know, and then, exactly, and, uh, you know, when you, no one's really done, you know, those great Pete Frame rock family too, um, and someone should you do the, you always should do the comedy one, because, you know, when you've been in it, lived in it, and, of course, they know them, and they get the demo. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, it's, it's, it is that thing of, well, you should get him, and he's bloody brilliant at playing a lunatic. Oh, is he? He's <laughs> just, isn't he? Michael Smiley, or... You know, Nick Frost, he's the greatest, the kind of, the, the, the nerdy, you know, flatmate. And so, because then those three live together anyway, Michael Smiley, Simon and, and Nick. So, yeah. ultimately, and then Edgar, we knew, Edgar directed the outside film bits for my first TV pilot for Channel 4. And that was almost the first thing he'd done. I mean, he'd done a little thing with Matt and Dave. So, mm. again, that's so how I met them through Matt and Dave. So, you know, it's so funny. It, was, it, 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 it felt like such a small pool. But, of course, you know, it does with every new wave of people. 
Yeah, it's like that, uh, was it six degrees of separation kind of thing? Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Well, it was probably two degrees, really. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I mean, I've always had a reputation for, for, for knowing everybody, but I've always said, well, listen, you know, I don't beat you. the more you work, the more people you, you meet. And, and because I used to promote as well, and I'd know, so I'd know a lot of music people, mm. and because I'd be booking for the, the club, and I'd know people like Guy and all of that lot. And so I, I had my music friends, and then I knew all the stand-up lot from having done comedy, and then I knew all the kind of TV comedy lot yeah. from doing TV. And then, so, and then I started to know all the theatre lot because I started to be in West End shows. So it's funny that you, you find yourself in the, the middle of a big Venn diagram, and you know, which is what I, I, I consider, you know, to have been blessed in that way of, of being I've never just felt like I'm just in one yeah. of, mm. of, uh, of talent or whatever I like, I like the mix yeah a lot of past guests have kind of you know Vic and Bob have been a, this connection that's connected them to other people you know like yeah. obviously through, like yeah. through the fast show you know all these different people well, certainly that South East London thing mm. to them coming down from the North East Ending up in South East London, but that Deptford connection, that Malcolm Hardy connection, yeah, yeah. that you know, the, the up the creek and then the Tunnel Club, and the weird and wonderful acts on the periphery of that, like Chris Lyman and Martin Stone and uh, Jules Holland and all of that, like and Roland Ribron. Yeah, um, yeah. And then from that, to, yeah, it's so funny. It, yeah, and I have to say, they they really are still two of the best people at kind of giving new talent a a larger audience and I love them for that and they've never sought a big audience for it they they just do it to make each other laugh and I, you know that's their joy is yeah. they're like big children yeah like Angelos Epithemiu I kind of discovered through yeah. Shooting Stars and you know yeah. you just see all these people that have kind of evolved you know from the sort of early beginnings I, know, I knew him from uh, from Edinburgh because he was in a great he was in the Dutch Elm Conservatoire sketch group, <laughs> which had Jim Field Smith and uh, Rufus Jones in it. Yeah. So they were Cambridge boys, you know. These were genuine bona fide kind of footlight, ex-footlights boys who you know, were treading that even more well-trodden path of go to Edinburgh to a sketch show, but they were, and shit, they were good. And also just delightful and phenomenally talented. And then, you know, I got to know Dan a bit more because then he started working with Alex. Mm. Oh, yeah. You know, so, you know, who I, you know, just adore Alex. And um, again, uh, old connections. And we worked together. I know Alex because we did a thing called Fun at the Funeral Parlour. Yeah. Um, which uh, Reese Thomas had written. And it's the first thing Reese had written. And then, of course, then I got to know the Far Show people yeah. because Reese was, was sort of a, a runner on the, on the first series of the Far Show. It's so, crazy. You know, again, more connection. Yeah, yeah. No, I've, I've sort of gotten to know Alex and Dan through obviously the Angelos and Barry. Just got, yeah. got obsessed with that podcast. And they're so good live. And Alex, is, he's so, so talented. You know, when you look at the. He's a great writer. The amount Alex of stuff. Is really one of those. Oh. I know. I mean, I, honestly, um, Clinton, this is the oh, thing also, yeah. when, you know, creating the, the Lenny show was having people like Alex come and they could say, what have you got? What can you bring? And always, no matter how embryonic it was, yeah. they'd always have a stage because I'm like, I know how good they can be. So you go, I don't give a, you know, a, a monkey whether this falls flat on its face or not, but if you can come and do five minutes of just a character exploration, I know it's going to be 
well received by an audience that accepts the weird and the wonderful. This is my beef now with a lot of places yeah. that it's become so anodyne and straight down the line, middle of the road stand up. That where are the weird club acts? Where are the you know where are the homes for those people? Mm. And and when you go on the road, do them in places it's really hard because they, they just want to see something a little safer and a little bit more straight down the middle and that's when it becomes a bit dull for me um so but god alex would you know even now first of clinton you know the lot <laughs> him do it live years ago and now i'm so pleased for his success because it's weird after slogging barry around the country yes. and it never quite hitting and then doing that disastrous bloody um, Noel Edmonds thing. Oh, uh, so then suddenly cheap, go, cheap, you know cheap. what, I'm going to return to Clinton and it exploding. It's brilliant. It really did. I mean, he did a, t- he did a tour and it was just, it was so yeah. successful that he's now got, he's now booking into early next year to do another, another massive tour. People are absolutely loving I know. Clinton at the moment. I mean, primarily, I mean, you know, and he, you know, he'll be first to admit it without that, you know, without that initial, I think the Phoenix Knights Association, really did him a lot of favours because it was a very memorable character on Phoenix Nights and they're a very loyal bunch and he, he was largely doing northern venues yeah. to begin with. And then, of course, from that, you get the snowball effect and you're getting some deservedly brilliant criticism and and then, you know, before you know it, you you know, you're booking bigger breaker tours. And, but, yeah, I think it, it's, it's been as much of a surprise for him as anybody. But, God, he's funny. Yeah, oh. he just comes across as so humble, doesn't he? You know, when you're talking yeah. to him, he's so humble. And then he gets on a stage and you're like, oh, my God, where did this come from? So he was a young actor. Yes. He was a proper actor. Yeah. And so he had that. There's another mate of mine who's a great unsung comedy actor, Dominic Coleman. And Dominic's been in everything. And um, he is without doubt one of the funniest performers I've ever seen. And we've worked together, you know, over the years. If I ever need any improv or anything, Dominic's my first port of call. I've never known anybody to improvise like him. And so, but he's that good because he's just a brilliant actor. He's just got that gift and it's, you know, you learn from, you learn from your peers, you really do. Yeah, yeah. Oh, even listening to the, the Angelos and Barry podcast and they're just, it's just like two kids. You know, they're like just yeah. like two little schoolboys. You know, all these sort of smutty jokes and you know. Absolutely. Oh, it's so good. They're so so good and live as well. They're amazing too. No, oh, so I know, so funny, so funny. Um. So yeah, we, so we talked about all your TV work and uh, obviously Little Britain. Going to the uh, the other, totally the other scale of things. Your your TV work, you know, uh, with Dick and Dom. I mean, ha- like, how did you get involved with those guys? That again was just, I think the. Uh, uh, that wasn't an audition thing. That was a. Uh, I'd been recommended. I think they'd had some. They were going to be doing this um, uh, this show, which was taking them out of the studio and you know into a kind of narrative comedy Python esque thing that mm. it was going to be called The Legend. It was going to be a quest thing. You know, this is at a time when you know Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit was really big. Yeah. And uh, yeah, just a middle earth piss take. And um, but they need some good actors around them. And they had something to play the Wizards, and something I can't remember what had happened, but they, they pulled out. So they knew that they needed someone quickly, and uh, so it was really a question of getting on with uh, with them. And I remember meeting one of them and the producer, and it just being joy. And yeah. That I'd say, you know, having done quite a lot over the years, when I look back at the three series that we did of that of the Legend, it was non-stop 
laughter. I mean, from the morning till we, we were, you know, driven home, it was unbelievable. And we've got some great people involved in it. I've got Roland Rivron to guest on one. I've got and Ted Robbins was in it. And oh, wow. Just some brilliant people. And some very, and the two main support actors doing the multi-parts, Dave Chapman, who's now, a, I mean, he, he was always a handsome puppeteer. Again, phenomenal. Nick Kirkby, Ian Kirkby, rather, was just brilliant. And it was, yeah, it was, again, it had a, a joy to it because it's, um, BBC Kids, it didn't feel like it was being interfered with. So we could get away with so <laughs> much that, you know, if you'd have put that through a, a fine tooth comb vetting system, there wasn't, you just wouldn't have, you wouldn't, have, wouldn't have seen the light of day. And just some amazing writers involved and, and it looked, and so for the, for the budget, it was pretty spectacular to be honest. Yeah, I mean that was the thing with Dick and Don, they were you know, kids, it was kids' TV, but some of their stuff was quite adult, you know, some of their, jo- yeah. their jokes yeah, 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 and yeah. stuff. Well, I have to credit that Steve Wright was their, was their mentor and producer, and Steve's now one of the heads of uh, the BBC um, Children's, and uh, Steve, again, was something of a genius. He started as an actor in the, the Nottingham, in, uh, the, um, they had their own drama group thing, mm. and that's where... You know, Vicky McClure started and other brilliant actors. I think Paddy Considine might have started there oh, as wow. well. So, you know, this amazing kind of um, just taking Nottingham Street kids and just, you know, just who didn't think that drama was going to be something that they were, you know, were going to be doing. Mm. And uh, I had a great tradition. And, uh, yeah, and so Steve came out of that as a, as a serious actor but knew that he wanted to move into TV and knew that he wanted to do kind of kids TV yeah. and knew that he wanted to do naughty kids TV. And when he found Dick and Dom, who weren't the double act at that point, he put them together uh, and created the bungalow. And, uh, you know, and the stories of that show. And, you know, it was the last live Saturday morning anarchic show. Yeah. And it was more anarchic than, you know, having had hadn't been around when live and kicking was on and stuff and had been down in the studios when that was on it had it was still a very safe middle of the road bbc show but then bungalow came along and it was just like chaos it's like tiswas and we we all love tiswas so you know great and again really important to have those shows and when those go you know something the world is a less joyous place Mm, yeah i mean as I, as I said earlier you, you you seem to have done literally everything a bit of everything dipped your toe in a lot of ponds and even taken to the stage i know you talked about the uh, 12 angry men there you were performing in the production of matilda so how was that yeah that was that was incredible it was a real game changer for me it was I, huge uh, wasn't it, it was... I, I can remember i knew Paul Kay a little bit, not well, but we were in the mm. audition for something together, and I was like, "How's it going, Paul?" He was like, "Yeah, it's good." So you know, I've been up here at Stratford. I've just done um, Matilda. I was like, "Yeah, I've heard. It's meant to be amazing." Because yeah, it's coming in the West End. I'm coming up dinner. I was like, "Oh man, I can't wait to see it." He's like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Come and see it. Come and see it." He came in, and um, after four months or five months. He had to come out of the show because he, for health, but his neck was screwed. Mm. And uh, so, and the director's wife, who'd said, I'll start the show, but I don't want to do it for any longer, was also coming out of it. Yeah. So they recast those two roles, me and uh, Mr. Wormwood and Miss Honey. And it was, uh, so we went, we joined 
when it basically they'd won a Olivier Awards <laughs> that week. That was the week we opened. So it became the hottest show in the world, pretty yeah, much. Yeah, yeah. And for that, you know, so I was in that cast, that first cast for six months, and then there was a complete cast change, and I stayed and did another year. So I did 650 Ooh, shows. Oh, wow. And had nine Matildas, I think, in that time, maybe more. But it was just, you know, uh, working with those kids particularly was, mm. you know, it was just uh, astonishing. And getting to know Tim Minchin and, um, you know, who's often there. And it was just, you know, it was a proper learning on the job. Mm. And, you know, working with people that you go, the talent of some of those musical people is just staggering. So I felt like a slight imposter. Yeah, and yeah. And I felt like, you know, I had to sort of skip into Paul's shoes, um, who created the role. But, yeah, I mean, it just, it, it just what a show. I mean, with absolute magic. And, you know, 1,800 people a day. And just it, when that last bar is sung, everybody's springing to their feet. Every yeah, single yeah. performance. And always 100% full. So I was very aware. I don't think I'm ever going to have that experience again. Um, it was pretty uh, remarkable. You know, I'm sure if you're in the first incarnation of Hamilton, it would have been the same. Mm. They don't come along very often, those sort of legendary shows like that. And I've never been back to see it. I don't really want to. I don't need to hear those bloody songs. (laughs) But they they were, you know, but I I remember, you know, a year in and standing in the wings and watching one of the girls sing, you know, a particularly beautiful song and just you know you find yourself just welling up again yeah for god's sake i've only seen that thing that you know 40 times but still it will get to you which is a real testament to the genius of the writing and also how how amazing those kids were yeah i remember when the first three of my matildas went i think it was paul who said yeah when they go you can go watch yourself it creeps up on you (laughs) it creeps up on you you're not aware and sure enough just i remember being you know, saying goodbye to him, just loving him. I mean, just Aww. like, and having to go to her parents, I'm really sorry, this is really, you know, they're <laughs> looking at you like, weirdo. But, you know, you 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 spend a lot of time with them and they're at, a, you know, an age where you, you're really watching them grow so quickly and they seep into your subconscious a little bit. And, yeah, amazing time. Of course, that led on to me doing um, Megan Dagenham, which was yeah. in the original cast of which was written by one of my dear friends, David Arnold, who we used to live together um, in about uh, 1999. No, no, it was 2009 we lived together. 2009, 2010. So um, that was an amazing working experience as well. That was a fabulous, a fabulous production and should have done better than it did. But I think it will have its day, that show, weirdly. And it's performed an awful lot around the country by... You know, amateur demand yeah. semi professional companies and it's brilliant. Brilliant. It's great songs. Really good. Yeah. Very funny show. Must be a totally different discipline though, to kinda of go into theatre acting. You kinda of think, Oh yeah, it's straightforward. But you you know, when you're doing like two performances a day, you know, a matinee yeah, and an evening, it must yeah, be you know, I, I, it, it's the it is the, it's a gen I mean that really is a genuine mouth. And when you you know, a lot of musical theatre people, that's all they are. That's, they are musical theatre people. Mm. You know, they go from one production to the, to the other. They know how to do it. They, they, but you learn to adapt like anything. And I, you know, my dressing room was just full of instruments and I would 
you know, play stuff, and I would be. Always, I'm always doing something else. Or I was Thursday nights. I was doing cabaret after yeah. Matilda. I'd get dressed up as Lenny and perform at the Playboy Club. Um, but again, it was like, you know, you were so high from the show. Yeah. You're just, you know, full of beans and excitement. And shit, I'm getting paid again for another gig. It's amazing. Then on Friday morning, you'd be like, oh, God, I'm drunk. But, you know, you learn to cut that out. No, you don't smoke and don't do that. Don't go somewhere where you have to talk loudly afterwards. Because yeah. that affects my voice. But, you know, you just learn to adapt and, and change. And, you know, I start to look after me diet Mm. you know and I I'm you know I haven't done a long running show for for a while and I feel there's a part of me that's ready to do it again if if it was the right show yeah um and I do miss I really miss being in the family of a of a a show um and I've dipped back in you know I've done I've done little bits and um and it's it's great to have that but I did a what was I I did National Theatre last year which was a real Oh, that was incredible! Yeah, um, I was a, played the title role in Mr. Gun. It was a family show, and that was again what a joy and privilege to work there. Working, sharing the dressing room with Barry Wilmot was oh wow, just missed the showbiz. Yeah, and, you know, you just missed the showbiz, and we just had a again. It's that thing of we were the we were the older men in the cast, and it was, it was you know you find it brilliant. Just a, a again, I still get very excited by things. That's the thing, you know. Do you still get starstruck? Do you still kind of? It's not starstruck, but I, I think I would with certain people. Mm. Like I, I did a film a few years ago with, with some Stephen Graham, who you know we did oh, a wow. pilot of this like seven years before that. Yeah. So we've been mates for a long time, and he was off to do the Irishman afterwards, and you know he'd be like you know working with Pacino and, <laughs> and yeah. Um, he was genuinely like it, you know, every day, like, bloody hell, you know, <laughs> genuine, you know, proper swing to winking moments. But it, of course, you know, like anything, after a few days, you're like, but these are just lovely, amazing professional people who have a mutual respect for what you're doing. Yeah. You know, you're there for a reason. You're not there because you won the lottery. You're there because you're bloody good mm. and Scorsese wants you. And I think it's that thing of, you know, there are very few people that have that sort of cachet that you'd be like, bloody hell, you know. Although I'm just excited to work with various people that I've got a huge respect for. And, you know, there are always going to be people on the list, like, you know, I've never worked with um, French or Saunders, but, you know, oh, you know. But then I worked with Adrian Edmondson um, a couple of years back, and I never worked with him, and then you're like, oh, he's so lovely. And, yeah. You know. So, yeah, it's more that. It's more excitement than... Um, yeah, I mean, who's who's making you laugh at the moment? Is there any sort of anyone on the comedy circuit at the moment that's kind of like, oh, you're, oh, he's so funny, or she's so funny? Um, I I'll, I'll fly the flag for a, a young friend of mine who makes me laugh so much, and he, um, I knew him when he uh, when he was a musician, and he he's only done comedy for a couple of years now. It's a guy called Josh Weller, very 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 funny. Okay. Um, Josh it was 20 when we met, but we became really close very quickly because he just had this innate sense. Of, he was like an old, he was like a you know like a he'd been an old soul who really knew his comedy, and uh, he's brilliant. And 
Alfie Brown makes me laugh. Uh, and I mean, there are a few great, you know, stand-ups that I see. I just don't go to stand-up clubs very much anymore. Mm. And I don't, in terms of what's on telly, you know, anything Julia Davis does. Oh, still, yeah. I She's love, brilliant. I mean, anything. And uh, Inside Number Nine is just uh, always glorious. Because mm. um, it also reminds me of the comic strip, you know. I like, I like a, a, you know, it feels like watching a, a group of proper actors doing dark stuff which I, you know is 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 always been my thing and but nothing that kind of and then, you know stuff comes through from america that you mm. go oh they're good i mean you know for me there will i don't think anyone can touch louis ck yeah unfortunately the touching was was an issue um <laughs> or certainly the displaying in front of and but i feel you know that he's coming back and uh, I, I, I am of the opinion that he should be allowed to yeah um, I, I think he's been ostracized and it will never be to the same degree that he had it before yeah but um, I think he was such an important stand-up and the, the way he talked about certain taboo subjects mm. for me was was you know unrivaled so um, I do like Romans, that's the problem. God, oh Christ, another one, you know, that I have a slight obsession with, and you're like, no, not you, please, no, no. Um, yeah, I think it's my mother's observation. Do you not see a, con- a little running theme through some of the people that you admire? <laughs> oh, God, stop it, stop it. Yeah. That goes back to the whole Gary Glitter and Jimmy Savile thing, you know? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, never admirer of, of Savile, has to be said. Yeah, Glitter, Glitter, you know. Yeah, someone was saying on Twitter the other day about, oh, you know, um, uh, remembering when they'd written to Jimmy Savile, <laughs> getting it onto Jim will fix yeah. it, one of the, you know. Yeah, yeah. Narrow well, escape. A lot of it did it, you know. <laughs> I know. Dear Jimmy, can you imagine even the idea I... of writing to him? I know, but it was, at the time, the we loved it. just appalling. I know, I know. It's, I think it's what we love the, the world. Yeah, yeah. possibility and being on, again, the idea of being on telly. Well, of course, now you're like, well, fuck, I mean, who's going to watch it on the telly anyway? Who's going to watch it on the film? You might as well watch TikTok. And, you know, for <laughs> the infinitesimal moment you're going to be on telly, people have got more fame or more 15 minutes than, you know, on, on, on various social platforms anyway. So it's a strange one. That, um, you know, and I'm still in that generation where you're like, oh, it should really be telly. But no, and now I'm doing Twitch. You know, I'm now turn my attention to, to doing multi-character stuff on, on a, what was a gaming platform and I'm loving it and, I, and I'm doing something very different to what other people are doing but I love the fact that it feels like the Wild West it feels like it's not like you know any you can do anything and I've got a nice little setup at home um, and we're, we've only just started but we're building up the, the followers and the subscribers and, um, and we've come to the attention of various people that are getting into what we're doing and that really interests me and it because it feels like there are no rules and that's great and it's also it's subscriber led which yeah. is free if you've got prime but they put they put some of that money into your pocket and that's more than spotify has done or facebook will do or other social platforms yeah and that for me is is a really amazing thing that God, you can monetize this. You can actually turn your popularity into some kind of financial remuneration, mm. which is just really important, especially at the moment. Something that mm. 
Yeah. Yeah, I know a lot. Of, there's a few comedians that have kind of taken to Twitch, you know, which, as yeah. you say, it would have been a gaming platform. You basically go on there and watch people play Call of Duty and all this kind of stuff. And now people yeah, like I'm Richard doing, Herring. I mean, I'm actually doing that, but in character. So, I've been, mm. you know, Lenny, Lenny's Lenny been playing Among Us. <laughs> and I'm, when I'm going around the spaceship, I'm singing as well. You know what I mean? So you're gaming... <laughs> You're sort of getting a performance that's odd, but and you're playing against a man in a wig who is singing your show tunes. <laughs> so, you know, there, there is a niche for it, Paul. Someone, you know, and then I've got this frightening character, Queenie, and Queenie will be playing word games and berating yeah. people for giving him the wrong answers. And so it's because I love long-form impro. So for me, it's sort of manner from heaven, and I can just do it at home. And I don't have to turn up to a venue and try and convince a, a, a crowd that are there to see stand-up that what I'm doing is just as good. Yeah. And then, you know, Alex Lowe and I have had chats about the, the inappropriate gigs for so many years. So you're like, God, oh, it's a gig in a bloody Chinese restaurant. They couldn't have been less <laughs> interested. So, you know, I think it's a really... Uh, yeah, I mean, I've got a new character now, and he's, he's playing um, Elder Scrolls. I mean, it, the world of Elder <laughs> Scrolls is... It's, it's like another, it is another world within a world. And yeah. I, I love that. I, you know, I like the, the fact I'm learning something as well and I'm making no bones about it. You know, I'm new to it and, I, and you need to help me through this weird maze that, that I've entered. So, uh, yeah, I lo- I, I'm, I'm all for it. Yeah, no, I'm loving uh, Pete the Soli. He's playing some amazing oh, tunes. Yes. Oh, yeah. Brilliant! I found well, some new music for him. him off. Well, I tell you what, we've now moved him off because it, it's a weird. It, it's the mu- music on that platform's a strange one, and yeah. they started to get. They started to clamp down. Um, oh wow! On, I know, I know that it's the, the DCMA in America, because people are using a lot of music content mm. and not they're not licensed for it. Right. So the algorithms get to work and just silence your broadcasts posthumously. So you, so until they sort that out, Pete will probably be on Facebook Live. But so it's that thing of you know that's beyond your control. But again, I understand why because artists have got to get paid for their yeah. for their wares and their right to you know record companies are right to go no 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 that yeah, has to be yeah. some sort of remuneration. So yeah, it's like the whole Spotify debacle, oh. you know. That's another oh, not, and, another day's yeah, work. Yeah, and I, um, you know, I'm, I'm still use it, but I try and still buy stuff that you know. From I mean, you know, you you you're a music fan, and mm. you're a, you know that's you're different. We're still few and far between. We we're willing to pay for certain music, um, but my kids, did, what? Why would you pay for it? <laughs> I mean, my daughter buys vinyl now. So yeah. she buys so she buys secondhand albums. So the only people making money out of those are the people selling them. So yeah, yeah. Um, weird world weird world yeah i mean that's the thing you know fortunately we've got stuff like you know band camp and all that kind of stuff where yep. people you can support your favorite artists like a you lot of artists are struggling system. yeah they're struggling at the moment you know i know i know oh god i know several i mean brilliant brilliant players who are who are struggling and uh, and it's not fair i mean it's just not fair and when your only livelihood really is the ability to play live and therefore sell your product at your gigs, when that's been taken away, you know, annoyingly, there's a, a, a favourite band, a young band from Hastings where I used to live, and they are, you know, they're on the cusp of, of being very big. And um, so to have 2020 happen when they're just riding that wave is really, you know, yeah. really hard for them. They're all doing part-time bits and bobs, but 
yeah, it's it's hard to it, it you know you want to go to meet you really you want to I know oh, I know God. and then the UK but, government you know, are telling you to retrain. <laughs> yeah, I know, and it's depressing. You know, I mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, I understand why they're saying that. It's just you know, but you need to, you, you you need to value what you've got. Yeah, 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 exactly. To, you know, um, and this government never will. So you know, I I, I mean, I, I do think you know we are moving. The last phase right now, thankfully, mm. um, and uh, hopefully enough of those venues will have been able to use handouts uh, as meager as some of them are to to keep their you know their staff on yeah. and uh, and reopen when they have to open. So we need them. Yeah, no, I mean Charlie Hickson was saying his son, uh, his son Jim is in a band called Koala, and they were they were due to yeah. make this big. You know, they were doing all the all the festivals. That this year was going to yeah. be their big year. And it's just totally know, gone down the toilet. I was a, a thing with Charlie last this time last year. Mm. It's where we we met Des O'Connor. Oh. I know. Uh, I just posted a picture of, of me and David Arnold and Des O'Connor and Martin Wilde, taken by my wife. We were so excited. Um, and and yeah, Charlie was saying exactly that that his son's band were um, yeah. were on the cusp and they were doing brilliantly. And then you know it's cruel. It's God. You know it's hard enough four bands to succeed at the best of times at the moment so for those few bands to, to have it cruelly robbed is uh, it's just not fair yeah so talking about music there let's let's move on to music it's obvious from from your work that you're a, a huge music fan um so what have mm. been your main musical loves over the years i would yeah, i started i was you know i started i was quite a rock kid and then uh, a prog kid loved bands like, you know, Rush and, and just sort of more, I suppose, a more accessible like King Crimson and, mm-hmm. and a bit of Gong. And, and then I got into, you know, I started going to see bands live when I was about 14. I saw a lot of bands. Yeah. I mean, a lot. And when I was certainly old enough to get into the marquee, I'd go and see two, three bands uh, a week. I mean, it was at its height when I was about 17, 18 absolutely loved music go to see mod bands go to see psychobilly bands go to see um psychedelic bands as well there were a few that i loved and and that kind of and then and then we'd do the glam rock thing as well so mm. um and then i started playing and then um i uh, but i was never serious about playing and the playing is, is, has never really left me because i started doing lenny i started to bring in instruments and i started playing shit i can play the violin i'm going to start playing that again I can play the bassoon. Okay. So those started to kind of permeate Lenny's live show. Yeah. And, um, and now I finally, in the last few years, got to have the confidence to start writing and recording my own stuff. So it's that thing of being, of, of, of being quite a slow burn for me. But I've always, and I remember Guy James years ago saying, oh, you, you should have been a music producer. You've got a really good ear. The love of it is yeah. there, and I'm, I've never been a good enough instrumentalist to, to make it professionally, and I know that. I mean, I can play a good rhythm guitar, but that's about it. Mm. But you know, I've, I've taught myself to play piano, now, and I've taught myself to, and certainly well enough to record stuff. But I, you know, I grew up, and my stepfather was a famous cellist, and my father was a very successful conductor, and so I had that. That's always been the the, uh, the background. So I've, I have a huge love and uh, appreciation of, of music and, and the playing of it and I'm very fortunate to have had um, 
lots of uh, just really phenomenal, phenomenally talented friends who are some very well known, some not so well known. Yeah. And um, you know, when someone like Matt Berry and I get talking about music, which is pretty much all yeah. we talk about, it's you know, there's a that's when it gets serious. You know, it's like it's a real love of usually Jesus Christ superstar with us, but there's a real, <laughs> you know, an absolute passion of, uh, you know, of, of, of production and this, that, and influence and that, and, you know, partner Paul is another one. Just, yeah. just, he got me into oh, yeah. so much, so much. You know, I've got, I've done you another little tape, Steve, <laughs> and you're like, oh, man, what's from this? And then, but I remember the first time I heard a ham, uh, someone played me a Hammond organ track at college. I was in my first year. It changed my life. And then I became a, just a just devotee of, of Hammond organ players. And um, and that still burns very strong. And then another friend, also at college, went, do you know what Northern Soul is? No. <sighs> well, what the fuck is that? Um, oh, my God. Life changer. Yeah. Then throughout all, you know, the early 90s, right the way through to the mid-noughties, it was, you know, it goes last day tonight. It's occasionally I'll go now. But it's like, yeah... Why would a you know middle class Jewish kid from North London <laughs> like this? It's like why you you know I'm literally the antithesis of a Northern Soul fan. Yeah, I mean it's just couldn't get further away from it. But you know you go to all night. I was like this is this is unbelievable. I mean this is literally the most underground thing in the world, and I've never seen passion like it in my life. Yeah, and oh, and the dancing Northern Soul dancing is incredible. Oh well, I was you know. I got in with a it's typical me. You get in with a little crowd, and you're like, oh, you know, the leader of that little crowd when we went up to Manchester for the first time was Keb Dodge, and Keb, as any Northern Soul fan will know, is an absolute bona fide Northern Soul legend who just happens to be pretty much the best dancer that one of the best dancers that ever graced the scene. Mm. And you know, when you just, it's like gymnastics. Yeah, um, really is. Performed by a scary uh, Scottish man with no hair, <laughs> but just. The you know prowess and athleticism and yeah it's uh, it, it's it's quite something and um, and I yeah I know I've dipped my toe in with Peter Solid but I did, it it comes from that passion and you can only do it could only do Lenny if I had that if you had the passion for the world that you're taking the piss out of yeah that's the thing I suppose yeah. you know as soon as you put the, the wig on and the eyebrows and the and the jacket that's it you 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 kind of inhabit inhabit Lenny yeah. You do, but the music that I listen to when I don't have that on mm. or play will be the same. So, you know, you're doing it because you love it. And I've always thought when, the, you know, Steve Steve Coogan's least successful character, Tony Farina, didn't work oh, yeah. because he didn't love that world. You know, I think it shines through. when it, 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 well, By Bob Down work, it worked because Bob lived and breathed it as well, you know? Yeah. I mean, I still do a radio show as Lenny with Martin Green, and Martin was... You know, pretty much responsible for most of our listening habits back in the day, mm. and and it, it's the same. It's like you you just live and breathe it, and uh, it's very important that I'm around those people because uh, you know they, they, I, I like the fact they still unearth things that you think, oh, surely we've heard it all now. Surely <laughs> we've, oh my god, where did you get this? Oh, in a you know bargain bin in a Korean bloody yeah. thrift store. Yeah, Amazing. that's, the, the, that's so. the beauty of it, isn't it? There's 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 so much stuff out there. 
you could literally yeah. you could you could never cover everything you know you're always going no. to find something new and also the amazing thing is that people are going to record into recording studios to do it so mm. what am i now where anyone could do it in the bedroom you know you still had to, there was an investment by record companies to still you know maybe this will be the next elvis or the next Liza Minnelli or whatever but you know there was that thing of you know especially with the northern scene where you're like god this this is like a, the best heartfelt soul record i've ever heard yeah what else is what else have they done? Nothing. They've literally done nothing else except then become a janitor in an elementary school. Like yeah. what? That's extraordinary. But of course, you know, well, yeah, because these people were sort of discovered on the talent show. They were given their chance at fame, and that they didn't happen. And then that record just ends up in a in a thrift store in Cincinnati and gets discovered by. An ordiner who brings it back and plays it in Blackpool, and they yeah. become a hero. I think it's a beautiful simplicity to all of that, and it's and it's very lovely that it was done here. You know, and I love those stories of when they come over and they haven't performed for thirty years, and they're performing to a bunch of strange people speeding off their tits in a room in <laughs> Macclesfield. <I'm> like what? <laughs> Amazing. That's it. So I mean, music is in your blood, you know. It's kind of come through through your dad and yeah. into yourself. I was listening yeah. to the uh, the ballad of the bald mod the other day. Oh, Absolute yeah. classic tune, classic Thank tune. You. I know. I loved it. That was my first, that was sort of my first foray into doing you know music. But so it feels like it's like my it's like the the the, the live shows that I do with multi character stuff. Yeah, my music now are like character. It's like character sketches of people. So it's not me going, "Hey guys, this is me, uh, <laughs> Steve First, and I'm doing some uh, some stuff." Nothing would make my would boil my piss more than yeah. hearing that. But but if you go, this is this is a, a, a song about a character from Soho who lived, you know, and so they become character stuff. Then and they've got a slight comedic twist. Then you can do it. So I'm doing uh, I'm doing a little bit more. And that, you know, when I do do my show again, those songs will be in between my my live character stand up bits. I'll be able to play my own music, which is great because I've yeah. you know, again I've never really done that before, and it's fabulous having the time and having the ability to do it. You know, in terms of just it doesn't take much attack now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and uh, as long as you keep it simple, you can make it sound pretty decent. So, yeah. Yeah, tiny bit, a tiny bit of a Billy Bragg homage, maybe in there. Oh think? yes, yeah, definitely. I mean, it was that. Yeah, it's that Bragg, um, Weller-esque. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah. And also being, you know, it's written from the first person. It's being a mod and not having hair, and you go. You know, it's not it's not good. It's not happening. And I remember going to see the specials and just going, God, look how many, just every. It's a lot of very large middle-aged men poured into a Fred Perry with no hair. Like, <laughs> you know, everyone's grown up and grown out and um, they're taller than their hair and they're certainly too big for that uh, that medium Fred Perry. I think you might have to have a slightly larger one. Yeah, yeah. Um, brilliant, you know, but uh, uh, yeah. So, yeah, there's so definitely nice fans. Nice. Fans kind of grow with their band. You know, you get into a band yeah. and you kind of you evolve <laughs> through the band. Like the wedding present, I absolutely love. And you go to wedding present gigs now, and it's just there's a lot of middle aged men washing. 
<laughs> and, and weirdly, David looks amazing now. He really it's does. Like, you know, often it's yeah. I I did a oh okay, um, I used to run a club in Hastings, uh, a comedy night, and um, when I lived there, and uh, we put Sean Hughes on, bless his heart. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, when he first started to go back into doing stand up, so about two thousand and six. Mm. And he brought David Gedge, and I was like, oh, bloody hell, I used to go and see you when He's I was a legend. 17, 18. And he was just so, and I was like, I was really, you know, I was kind of quite, uh, like, was a handsome man, and he's age 12. <laughs> and he really had, I mean, you know, he, yeah. he, he still looks great. I think that, yeah, it's funny how, and, the, and the, actually the specials look amazing. I thought they were, they, they look great. Yeah, um, Terry Hall looks amazing, doesn't he? He's, he's aged he very fantastic. well. Fantastic. Yeah, he really has. Shame that the Damas didn't want to do it, but you know, yeah, it, yeah, it is what it is. Yeah, um, David's uh, is a silver fox now, isn't he? He's, he's, he's indeed you know, silver indeed. fox, and Neil looks great. Ah, uh, he always and, looks great. He's slightly <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's a I'm trying to think if there's anyone who oh, I've seen that you're like, oh, Jesus, just you know. No, it's not nice to say anyway. <laughs> <laughs> not even Divine Comedy. You know, I've been I've been sort of following Neil since like '95, and the amount of different yeah. like you obviously got regeneration era when he had his grew yeah. his hair and you know he had the hipster beard at one point and he's you know yeah, he's, he did, yeah. he's yeah. been he's been through all the different never he's never he's never not been anything other than waist like so, <laughs> you know what I mean he's always had the uh, the, un- really the malnourished does. look about him the uh, but um, yeah. So I think that is, that can be very kind to someone. Yeah, so they yeah. kind of they always fit their clothes and they always look <laughs> like they, you know. Um. That was the joke of it, Neil. Back in the day, he used to wear everything. Everything was like two sizes too big. You know, when you look at his like his shoes, his shoes were too big. His jackets yeah. were too so big. What was the fashion then as well? I think that midnight <laughs> thing where you just think hung off people a little bit, <laughs> a little bit more fitted. But yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I was at the we went to see them at the Astoria one night and. They, 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 they walked past and Neil looked like he'd, do you know what I mean? He'd just been sitting at the side of the street with a with a cup. <laughs> Neil, what you, you know, has it come to this that you've, you know, you're not used to seeing him in, uh, you know, like T-shirt and yeah, yeah. all the this normal. kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that was, that was really weird. But uh, yeah, so many stories. As, you, as I say, I you must have, you know, so many yeah, stories over the years. Yeah, well, so you need someone, someone like Paul Partner's great for... He will always remind you of stories. He's a great, you know. We have we've started now, or we did start having dinners for the, the Regency Rooms Club, the the, um, the Lenny Beige Club. Mm. You know, there were four years, probably about ninety seven, ninety six to two thousand, where it, you know there were so many nights that yeah. you, you know, and you all had different experiences. And it was a big room, and there were big, you know, and you go off to different places afterwards. So. You know, we're trying to compile lots of bits and photographs and um, as much video as we can. And, you know, there were an awful lot of people that came through those doors and appeared on the stage that, mm. you know, I think it would still make a very, a very good documentary. And, you know, it's such a very yeah, used to yeah. do it regularly. And there's certainly a saleable documentary, I think, yeah, but it's like, it's like you've got to be asked to do it. Like, yeah, that's the thing. If I was bed bound for whatever reason, and I could sit there with a small edit suite, I could do it. But um, it would require a Herculean mm. effort. But you know, those memories are great. And uh, yeah, do like history, things. history of the club or something. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something yeah, to I think mean, about. There were a few clubs like that. There were clubs, clubs Zarathustra, which um, 
Simon Munnery did and Lee and Harry, which was amazing. And then there was another club called TBA, which mm-hmm. is a sketch club that Armstrong and Miller met at and uh, was done by the uh, Parsons Naylor. And they had some incredible acts as well. So there were the three clubs sort of running at the same time. And I always thought that would make a very interesting series because pretty much anybody who was in, yeah. any, in, in any way, shape or form passed through one of those clubs. So, and then, you know, pretty much all household names. Yeah, Paul Putner's coming on the podcast in, in the new year. So I'm Good really, boy. I'm looking forward Good. to that. He's such a little diamond. Oh, he's just one in a million, that boy. Absolutely one in a million. That's some of my funniest memories of thinking about him he would always just uh, ask him about he's got his you know he'd always arrive somewhere he'd be a nice black tie dinner oh I think yeah what you got there Paul oh yeah I've got the tinnies we always have a bag of, of tins well I don't like what they serve you know I don't like cranberry no oh yeah he's opened another one another one oh just joy absolute oh I love that man. Absolutely yeah, no, I've been lucky enough to meet just, him a couple of times, and he's just he's just an absolute gent. <laughs> no worries. Um, so, how has how has lockdown affected, or has it affected the way you're working at the moment? Are you still obviously you're still doing the Twitch stuff? Well, I was saying that in terms of just putting stuff online, I was very quickly into. Uh, I was like, what can we do? What can we do? You know what? I can do yeah. a show on Facebook Live and. We kind of grew it very quickly, and but it kept me sane. And it, I mean, it would have kept me sane anyway. But it, it, it gave me a focus twice a week and allowed me to chat more with the community than I ordinarily would have. And that was a really special thing. And I loved that, and that suddenly felt really personal. And yeah, and also I started expanding my repertoire. I started doing that show. I'm going to do a new song, and I'll write one, and then. You know, it was great. And so I'm going to do, you know, and that has led into doing the Twitch thing, um, just mm. on a different platform. But so, you know, and, and then, I, you know, work from home. I can do bits. I can do some boyfriend stuff from home. I can, yeah. Um, I've done some online teaching. I've done, you know, I mean, listen, my income has gone down way, way, yeah, way yeah. below what it was. But very fortunate. We're in the country. Me and my missus, she's carried on working um, from home. And we've had a, you know, We've been in the idyllic surroundings, so I could, you know, I'd much rather be up here than in London. So it's been amazing. But I've missed being in venues, and I've missed being with people, and yeah. seeing my kids as much. As it's about adapting, isn't it? I suppose you know you're having to having to re- adapt yourself for these strange times that no one really knows think, what's going on. Yeah, but the nice thing is everybody's had to do that. Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. The, the hardest thing is I always think when someone, you know, God forbid, you you know, you lose a limb or you lose this or, mm. that, or you, you, you know, whatever it is yeah. that you've got to readapt what you do. Yeah. And if that means you can't do that when you're by yourself and you feel you're by yourself, that's awful. But when everyone's on the same page, pretty much, they understand what you're going through because they're going through it themselves, then it becomes, uh, you know, kind of has made people much more uh, open and much more hopefully mm. kinda hopefully I mean my wife's always optimistic that it will herald a new era of kindness I hope it will I hope that yeah. continues a little bit I hope people will think a little bit more about other, others you know certainly t- taught us that we don't have to shop at Waitrose anymore <laughs> you know, we're now we're a quarter of the, the price shopping at Lidl's Lidl yeah Lidl and Aldi it. you know it's oh. amazing and you're like 
so uh, you've had to you've know, had to leave my snobbish ways um, <laughs> behind, and I think that, that that can only be a good thing. You know, can only be a good thing. Yeah. Uh, conversely, I think it it's forced me into learning things as well, which I'm I'm really appreciative of. Yeah, yeah. That's the thing. Every day's a every day's a learning experience, isn't it? I suppose at the end of the day. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to say another so, favourite character of yours I love is the Mayor of Kentish Town. Graham Lewis, yeah, yeah. I love him so Very much. He's just so... Very fond of him. You know, where did that... Why did you choose to... Uh, obviously, he speaks I very kind know. of... I had that, uh, that uh, kernel of an idea for just an outspoken... Because I've always done that voice. And, yeah. You know, and I suppose it came from the growing up in London. <laughs> and, but that uh, that fast-talking... That I just thought, well, wouldn't it be funny if there was someone who had just appropriated that voice but was very intelligent and very verbose but but with that I'm ain't talking like that I'm just talking like this so I can like identify with people when they can identify with me I want to ask them a question they understand exactly either you know but when I'm talking about I can also be vehemently loquacious as well so you know he's got a ridiculous vocabulary so I you know I expect comedic juxtaposition but he's also not afraid to, you know, I, will, I will slap you down the and you know and it was that came from a comic strip film years ago, where an ex bouncer called Nosha Powell played a uh, played the Home Secretary, and he just went in and just bashed heads together. You know, it was like you know, there's going to be if there's going to be we're going to sort it out. Just go bang. And I thought I always thought that's funny idea that there's one person in politics who's like a pit bull. I mean, of course there is. I mean, but they're always in a different way. But if they're not afraid to physically. If you don't shut up, I'm going to punch you in the throat. That's how it's going to win, right? All of you, you're all, you know, and, and so whilst the methods are abhorrent, we all know that you want a plain speaker that, and and, and also he's, he's in it for himself, so you're honest about that. So, yeah, appropriate funds to build a fucking place on the top of the town hall. I've got to live, man got to live, man got to eat. You know, so it's that thing of he's, he's brazenly honest. So I think people like that, and it's it's a kind of you know I mean we and, and we had a, a little touch with a friend who who wanted some stuff done for Comedy Central. Yeah, so we, did, we sort of created the little films for Comedy Central, and then he only lasted a year. They went off, and uh, it never quite got the, the the traction that I thought it would. But I'm an old. I'm like no. I'm, I, I love this character. I'm yeah. going to carry on with it. And I just think I, I think. In my head, he'll have his day at some point. I don't know. It's just so for me. It's just doing it and keep it's to keep doing it in some way that um, keeps my interest in him because I I just it just makes me laugh as well. Yeah, oh, I think the UK government could do with somebody like Graham Luce at the moment. You know, <laughs> I agree. Get him yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. I think every lo- and also, you know what? No matter where you are in the world, it's the same. And, yeah. uh, you know, it's politicians are self-serving, they're corrupt, they're liars, they're cheats. And no matter what side they are, in fact, it's worse from the left because you, you, you're, the, you're the ones we turn our hopes on to be honest. And, yeah. you know, when that doesn't happen, you feel even more let down. So I just think, yeah, it, it's uh, the Alan Bastards of the world yeah. or the Graham yeah. Looses of the world. It doesn't matter what side, people like, the, people like a, a, an honest villain as well because uh, we're lied to all the time yeah i was watching some clips on youtube the other day and he was he was complaining about there was a there was a white bin and a blue bin and he's like what is What's the blue- brown bin for <laughs> 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 yeah 
And uh, fuck it, chuck it. So, yeah, so that good. That was a very early, that was a very early walk. And that was, again, that was just that thing of just going out with my mate Tony and just filming and just improvising and some of the best stuff coming out of that. And then, uh, so I missed that. I missed that kind of, yeah, I, I should definitely kind of just take to the streets and do it again because it's so easy to do. Yeah. And it's so, you know, and I did want to do a character. And I vowed up, right, I'm going to do a new character and he isn't going to wear a wig. That was a real conscious decision. I want to be able to bring a character in a small bag to a venue and be able to perform. Yeah, so reappropriate the cool. for the bald man out there. Exactly, the yeah. bald man needs not to be uh, <laughs> covered up for this character. Yeah. But anyway, thank you so so much for for chatting with me today, You're Steve. Very welcome. It has thank been an, an absolute pleasure. I'm wanging on for so long. But, it's good. Um, I've yeah, absolutely loved you. it. But you know, it's, you talking to talking to comedy me. heroes, it's just it's amazing. Oh, well, listen, you know, thank you for for um, for giving us a, a portal to 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 to, to, sh- to shout through. So um, bless you for doing it, and uh, and long may it continue. No um, worries. Give partner my love. Yeah, I will do. I will do. Yeah, I was I was saying about him coming on. He's I'm I'm kind of up to my eyeballs. He's I think he's saying he's got so much so much work on at the moment. It's kind of crazy so we're yeah. looking into the Paul's new year also one of these again he can't complicate his life he doesn't <laughs> yeah. multitask yeah. Paul's got to get everything he's got to clear the decks before anything new comes along even if it is just a chat um, he's so fantastically old fashioned like, <laughs> no no it's too much oh honestly I just that's oh. the beauty of him though isn't it you know he's just completely. so down the line completely he's... I know yeah. he uh, yeah he's just he, he He's just very, very unique, and there aren't many, aren't many like that left. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Anyway, thanks so much, Steve. As I said, it's Thank been you, a, a pleasure. Care.